The Firebender's Guide to Living Life After Destiny. Written by Chuffy Stilton. Read by Meisinger. Chapter 4 Zuko sighed and tried to surreptitiously lean against a pillar. Try to find out if any of them are acting suspiciously. To be honest, political subterfuge was never Zuko's forte. The teenage years he could have spent at court, mastering the sort of slippery, double-sided conversation that came so naturally to everyone else, he actually spent on board a military ship with his uncle for company. And, if Zuko was really honest with himself, most of his time on the ship was spent sulking alone in his cabin, or practicing firebending, which had just been his slightly more productive way of sulking. When he did leave his room, few conversations reached a level of complexity higher than Have you seen the Avatar? or Where is the Avatar? or Stop right there, Avatar! Predictably, as an adult, Zuko was a decent firebender with atrocious conversational skills. He sometimes wondered if it wasn't the wrong order of skills for a ruler of a nation to have. He was still trying to figure out who to approach first when a man in a gaudy set of ceremonial armor stopped in front of Zuko to catch his attention. Lord Q, Zuko said. Q gave him a shallow bow. Good evening, Fire Lord Zuko. May the rays of Agni guard you from the night. And may they greet you tomorrow along the dawn, Zuko said, giving the standard reply. He took a surreptitious step back to avoid the gold spikes on Q's pauldron. He recognized the material and the expensive craftsmanship. The armor was decorated with bits of scale and bone taken from a slaughtered dragon. It was an old-fashioned choice. Azulon had commissioned several sets back in his day, which he had passed on to Ozai. They belonged to Zuko now, and he had ordered them to be put in storage and tried his best to forget about them. The sight of all that embalmed viscera made him queasy. I wanted to formally apologize for any offense caused by my behavior today, said Q. I had disrespected your authority and challenged your honor. I had been blinded by concern for my nation and spoke without thinking. He cleared his throat, as if the words had itched coming out. It wasn't an apology so much as an excuse with a coat on, but Zuko let it pass. I understand your position, Lord Q, he said, trying to edge away. Q inclined his head and then beckoned a servant over who was carrying cups of wine on a tray. He took one for himself, and gestured for Zuko to take the other, and clinked their cups together. "'A toast,' he said. "'To the Fire Nation.' "'A toast,' repeated Zuko. He scanned the room over his cup. Sokka was talking to the secretary of an agricultural minister on one of the stone benches by the water. There was a lot of wild gesturing. Both men seemed to be laughing. Clearly, he was having a better time than Zuko was. 
You are very close with Ambassador Sokka, said Q. Zuko started, nearly dropping the cup. He had been bracing himself for a passive-aggressive barb about his leadership, not some cryptic statement about Sokka. He is an ambassador and the brother-in-law of the Avatar, he said carefully, making sure his gaze had shifted to focus on a decorative eve instead. It would be in the Fire Nation's best interest to keep relationships cordial. There. That sounded nice and diplomatic. Q gave him a long look. Even before I met him, I've heard about Ambassador Sokka's behavior on many occasions, said Q. He has a reputation for being a dissolute, feckless mess, and I believe it is inappropriate for the Fire Lord to be too close with him. In any case, he's a foreign representative. There's bound to be a conflict of interest. Ambassador Sokka arrived only a few days ago, Zuko said stiffly. That's not much time to get a reputation. What occasions are you referring to? This and that, said Q. A tree is but made of a thousand leaves. What is it, wondered Zuko, that made Fire Nation men over a certain age give proverbs instead of answers? Before he could probe any further, Q was beckoning over someone else to join them. Allow me to present my daughter, Fire Lord Zuko, said Q. This is Lady Kezia. I had asked her to join us here after the meal to enjoy the summer evening. With everything else that had been going on, Zuko had completely forgotten about Q's comments about introducing his daughter. It was too late to beat a hasty retreat now. The young woman, no, girl, bowed deeply and said, It is my great honor to meet you, your majesty. Zuko had noticed her staring at them across the room earlier, but he had chalked it up to the normal staring he gets for his scar. The story of his banishment was common knowledge, though the amount of damage his father had inflicted changed with each telling. Some people got the wrong side, which wasn't too bad. Others seemed surprised he had a face at all. Presented to him up close, Kezia did the normal thing that everyone did, which was to gawk subtly at first, and then look very carefully at everywhere else on his face except for the scar. Zuko's nose itched from the attention it received by default. Kezia graduated at the top of her class in the practical lessons, said Q. She is also a great enthusiast for firebending history. At the academy, she wrote her graduating thesis on the achievement of your great-grandfather Sozin during the first comet. At the sight of Zuko's blanched face, he added, All about the scientific principles behind the comet's effect on bending, of course. Mykesia is not at all political. I hoped that as a master bender yourself, Fire Lord Zuko, you could have some advice to share. It would be my pleasure to hear, said Kezia. Your ancestors are an inspiration to every firebender in the nation. Unlike her father's dragonscale armor, Kezia's own formal robes were loose and shapeless, tied with a maroon sash bustle that nearly blended into the rest of the black fabric. 
A pair of spectacles hung around her neck on a chain, glinting against its silk background. Although her face was rounder and more delicate, she shared Q's reddish hair and heavy brows. Both father and daughter had the pale skin and yellow eyes of the old aristocratic bloodline, same as Zuko. He could see how a match with her might appeal to the traditionalists in the country. Side by side, they'd look like a matching set of clay dolls, the Fire Lord and the matching Fire Lady. Though the Fire Lord would need some fresh paint on his left side before he could be displayed. I'll leave you to it then, said Q in a jovial tone. The journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step, he added, and then melted away into the crowd. Or, as much as a man of his height in that sort of eye-watering armor could melt. By now, Sokka had moved inside the pavilion and was standing by a pillar, chatting with two Earth Kingdom women with gigantic hairstyles that rivaled Toph's at her bushiest. He was doing the work they had agreed on, while Zuko was stuck making polite conversation with a schoolgirl. The most important thing, Zuko decided, was to end the conversation as quickly as possible and start interrogating the ministers thronging the room. "'It's a pleasure to meet you,' he said to Kizia. "'But I'm afraid I need to speak with some of the other people at the banquet.' "'Oh,' said Kizia. "'I was hoping to hear more about firebending. "'You must be a true master if you've taught the Avatar.' "'Graduating at the top of your class is no small feat,' Zuko said tightly. "'I'm sure you don't want me to tell you anything.' "'But you know the Avatar. He must have so much wisdom to share.' Zuko stared at the pond in the distance and racked his brain. "'Both Aang and my uncle, Iroh, would say to remember to meditate and focus on your breath.' Uncle Iroh always told me that by controlling the breath, I can control my fire. And Aang's always big on breathing, being an airbender first. The last airbender, seeing what my inspirational great-grandfather did with his comet, he almost added, but he reined himself in. Kizia nodded serenely. Zuko tried to step away, but she followed him with a step forward. Excellent advice, Fire Lord, she said. I'll be sure to heed it. Anything else? In a real fight? Expect the unexpected, said Zuko. The instructors at the academy are good, but real life isn't the same as school. He tried to step away again, but Kizia was clinging to him like glue. Anything else? By Agni's name, was she going to demand Zuko teach her how to shoot lightning in the middle of the pavilion? Zuko thought for a second. No matter what Zozin has taught us, you must take care not to let your bending be fueled by rage or hatred, he said. We draw our power from the sun, and the true purpose of firebending should be connected to the ideals of life and energy. For the first time, something perturbed Kizia's serene exterior. Sozin taught us that firebending is the manifestation of force through unflinching will, Kizia said, giving Zuko a small frown that was bordering on a scowl. 
In that moment, the resemblance to her father was uncanny. You would disregard your ancestors' words on the basis of our discipline and our nation? Um, yes, said Zuko. My father was right about you, said Kezia. Her gold eyes met Zuko's, her pleasant expression firmly back in place. He says you won't last a decade as the Fire Lord if you keep alienating the court the way that you do. People are unsettled by the Harmony Restoration Movement, and by rumors of your soft tendencies. Out of sight, the musicians have struck up a new piece. Distant tones of the two-stringed fiddles and the pipas filled the silence between them. Servants crept around the pavilion, swapping the resin in the braziers with clay chips soaked in lemongrass oil, which were meant to purify the air and drive away insects. Soft tendencies? asked Zuko, his throat dry. He felt his heart rattle around his chest like a bead inside an empty box. Your friendship with the Avatar, for one thing, and your conspicuous silence towards the matchmakers. It makes people talk. If Q has such a low opinion of me, why does he want you to marry me? said Zuko at last. What a very blunt question, said Kezia. And isn't it obvious? What's obvious? He wants to exert influence over you and avoid the collapse of the Fire Nation as he sees it. Through me. Ah, uh, said Zuko. I hate the idea, of course. Just because I'm a woman, I don't plan to be used and spent like a copper piece. I don't care about what my father says. Ah, uh, said Zuko again. Kezia ran a finger down the chain that held her spectacles. They were round and sleek, with rims made of steel instead of gold. "'How long have you known Ambassador Sokka?' she asked suddenly. "'For quite some time,' Zuko said. He was tired and sick of this conversation. "'Why do you ask?' "'Do you think you could introduce us? I want to meet him, and my father couldn't interrupt if you're introducing me to your old friend.' If anything could inspire Q to break decorum, it would be his imperialist daughter meeting the dissolute, feckless, water-tribe barbarian, but Zuko decided not to mention it. Sokka's plan for him to work the room wasn't working, but Zuko was better at improvisation anyway. If anyone was planning a conspiracy against him, Lord Q was more likely than not to be involved. Maybe Sokka will learn something from talking with Q's daughter. He took Kezia's arm and led her to where Sokka was still speaking to the Earth Kingdom ministers. He waited for the two women to take their parting and wander off, and then he gestured at Kezia. Ambassador Sokka, I want to introduce Lady Kezia, daughter of Lord Q. He tried to keep his tone formal. Just a fire lord speaking to another dignitary. Nothing to see here. Sokka gave a bland smile and a bow in Kezia's direction. "'Pleasure to meet you.' "'The pleasure is all mine,' said Kezia. "'Something's changed in her tone, making her sound much more girlish. "'I'm so glad to meet another newcomer to Caldera City, Ambassador. 
I imagine it must come as a shock to you compared to your villages of ice and snow. Sokka increased the blandness of his smile. If you ask me, every city in the world is a letdown after you've been inside Ba Sing Se's inner walls. But how are you finding Caldera City? Kezia murmured something about finding it fine, and the two of them launched into a conversation about the labyrinthian layout of the palace city, and how difficult it was to navigate. Zuko stood there for a polite amount of time, then wandered away and left them to it. That night, Zuko laid in bed and stared at his silk canopy for a long while before going to sleep. It was a lot to take in for one day. Luan's speech... The reparations negotiations. Q and his daughter, Kezia, whom he definitely did not trust, especially not when she was clinging on to Sokka's arm like a sea barnacle, with no trace of the coolly dismissive young woman she had been earlier in front of Zuko. Zuko threw off his light blanket and rolled over. He breathed in through his nose and tried to clear his mind like he did for meditation. But in the dark, old memories crept out and encircled him like insects. He thought about the way his heart had leapt when he came to the pine grove and saw Sokka standing there. The flesh that crept up his neck when Sokka strode off into the pavilion. He thought about Sokka the last time he saw him. Not his arrival to the Ember Island Theater, but before that, a year ago when Zuko visited the Southern Water Tribe's territory. That had been a wonderful two weeks. What does it all mean? The question ran through his head, over and over again. What does it all mean? Zuko whispered out loud into the darkness. He wasn't sure what he was asking about. Kezia, or the conspiracy with Luan, or everything to do with Sokka. But either way, the rustling curtains and the chirping crickets outside didn't give him an answer. That night, Zuko dreamed about the polar tundra in summer. When he finally visited the Southern Water Tribes as Fire Lord Zuko, as part of the Harmonic Restoration Movement, it came as a shock to see the landscape looking so different to his memories. When Zuko crashed his warship through the walls of Katara and Sokka's village six years and a lifetime ago, he had seen nothing but barren stretches of empty land, a ragged group of savages standing in a barren stretch of snow and ice. Some of his ministers, along with the ship's crew, were disappointed that they would not see the famous ice houses of the water tribes. But Zuko liked the new landscape. He took it as a good omen. Just as the seasons turned, so did people. It was like Zuko himself. For a long time after his banishment, a part of him had been frozen over as well, buried under. But now, it was different. Like the vast plains he felt greened all over, alive with hope. When he came down the walkway, Katara and Sokka were there to greet him, Hakoda and a few other chieftains standing a few paces back. Katara ran up to greet Zuko with a hug. Sokka and Hakoda clasped his forearm like old friends. Which they were, Zuko realized with a sense of faint surprise, after they drew back and let go. 
I'll show you around, Sokka had said, and led the way into camp. The hunting settlement they were meeting in was a large gathering of tents and sod houses, located by a large bay rich in Arctic seal colonies and whales. Bato told him that before Fire Nation raids drove the Water Tribe villages further south and inland, the people of the tribes gathered once yearly to hunt the Arctic whales and seal walruses by the coast. It was Zuko's chance to meet the other chieftains at the largest gathering of the Water Tribes other than the Winter Solstice. Even with his diplomatic business, Zuko had large stretches of empty free time during the day. Hakoda and the other village leaders were busy during the day, occupied with hunting and dealing with their own people's needs, and held meetings in the bright twilights. Zuko had been invited on his second day to join the other men in hunting and fishing, but he was no good at it. The other men moved gracefully in coordination with each other, and they paddled through the waves and through their fishing nets with practiced ease. Zuko, sitting on their skin boats, was clumsy and got in the way. Zuko was not issued an invitation the next day, which he thought was fair. He spent a while hovering around Katara, marveling at how busy she was, but after the fifth or sixth time her youngest waterbending students abandoned their own practicing to make Zuko shoot sparks out his nose while they cheered, Katara shooed him away for being a royal show-off and a distracting menace. Zuko protested. He always found it hard to say no to children. Sort out your own childhood abandonment issues somewhere where my pupils are not holding two-ton jagged chunks of ice above each other's heads. Katara retorted, one hand on her hip, like the middle of the ocean, or a nice underground cave somewhere. That was when Sokka took him under his wing. Come with me, he told Zuko. He tossed Zuko a paddle and a set of his own spare parka and trousers, and that was that. The official explanation Sokka gave was that they were going off fishing, which they did, or at least Sokka did, and Zuko kept out of the way. And thus began a very strange week and a half of Zuko's life. Most of the time, their long excursions served no clear purpose at all. The two of them would paddle out, and Sokka would spear a few snow halibut. But when one of them got hungry, they abandoned the trip to go ashore and eat their catch. Sokka cleaned and gutted the fish. Zuko roasted them in his hands. They ate with their fingers, quick and messy, and washed their faces afterward in the shallow tide pools on the shore. Sometimes, they left the canoe entirely and went walking in the tundra. Those were Zuko's favorite days. In summer, the tundra was a gold-green plain of grass and lichen and moss, rustling with small, strange animals darting about, living their small, strange lives. When the wind blew... Bird flocks in their thousands scattered upwards like dust, calling unfamiliar songs. There were long stretches of time when they did nothing much at all. They dug around the shore for mussels and prickly sea urchins, which Sokka ate and Zuko refused. They tossed around a grass ball and played pie show using pebbles and wild berries as the pieces, scratching out a rough board on the frosted soil. In the beginning... Zuko tried to keep a conversation going. Suki had told him back in Caldera that she and Sokka had parted on amicable terms. 
but Sokka didn't want to talk about Tsuki at all. Nor did he answer when Zuko asked about the reconstruction efforts or his future plans or any sort of politics at all. Zuko gave up asking. He knew what it was like not to want to talk. But unlike Zuko in his lowest fits, Sokka cycled between moody silences and rambunctious chatter. In his talkative moods, he kept up a rambling commentary about every variety of bird or lemur or berry that they saw. He had nothing to say about the future, but he had endless stories about his childhood. Some were lighthearted, like the time he got two fish hooks stuck inside his thumb, and some were darker, stories about hard times and deprivation. In the first lean winter after all the hunting men had left for war, he told Zuko, he and Katara boiled lichen and pieces of their old seal-hide boots for lack of anything else to eat. That day, near the end of Zuko's visit, they were crouched down in the grass, playing a game Sokka had explained. They were imitating bird calls, competing to see who could lure one of the small brown sandpipers over with their whistling. The winter when we ate black lichen to stay alive, Sokka said suddenly. That was when I brought down my first seal. I paddled out alone to look for them, and I didn't come back for days. It's dangerous to go out alone on the ice, even for seasoned hunters, but I had to, or else Gran Gran and every elder in the village would have starved. When I came back, Katara cried. She thought I had died, and it was my ghost coming to say goodbye. Zuko listened because he didn't know what to say in return. He always thought his own royal childhood was miserable, but at least he'd never gone hungry. Not really. After the failed siege in the North Pole, when Zuko and his uncle were on the run from Azula, they lasted barely a week of foraging before Zuko put on the blue spirit mask and began committing armed robbery instead. He hadn't been a good person in the past. Not by a long shot, but in comparison to Sokka's childhood, that particular memory brought Zuko a hot flush of shame. Sokka was still talking, looking dreamily up at the sky. After that day, Katara made me promise to always take her along for hunting trips. I thought we were being so daring. Women aren't supposed to go hunting, and especially not when they're waterbenders. But with so many of the men gone, we had our own world, just the two of us. We played bird whistling in the summers when we went trapping for hares. Katara is so good, she can call a bird to her finger. We were out fishing when we found Aang, and then he wiggled his fingers in the air. Now everything's... I mean, it's... Different, Zuko finished for him. More complicated. He understood. When Hakoda wasn't around, people automatically turned to Katara. There was always someone who needed her for something. Healing, freezing the game for storage, teaching waterbending, dispensing advice and instructions, planning the reconstruction of the great southern water tribe city. And Aang wasn't even here during the summer hunting season, or she'd be even busier in her remaining snatches of free time. Katara was growing up. 
She was leaving the world of birds and ghosts and silly childhood games behind. I can't believe I'm saying this, Sokka said. But sometimes I miss the war. When we were just a couple of kids on a flying bison. I miss it sometimes, too, Zuko blurted out. He hadn't realized it was true until he said it. He thought about him and Iroh on the run in the Earth Kingdom. He didn't miss the fear, the nights of rough sleeping, the constant and gnawing worry of people discovering their secret. But he missed his uncle. What had happened to those kids? Zuko had very little experience on how to make friends, and even less on how to keep them. Since the war, it was like cupping a palmful of water between his hands, fighting a slow and constant leak. They've gathered since then, wrote each other letters by Messenger Hawk, but the easy closeness had never been quite the same. Zuko had accepted it by then. He prized each and every letter, though he always meant to write more in return. Check up on Iroh's new tea shop, and Toph's metal-bending students, and Aang's attempts to find the wild sky bisons. But there was always so much to do, and it was so easy to put off writing for another day, and then another. In the adult world, his terrible slowness overtook his haste. I'm glad I'm here, Zuko said. They were both lying down on the soft moss, hands pillowed underneath their heads, side by side in identical poses. I'm glad you're here too, Sokka said back. It means a lot to my family. My dad really likes you, and Katara would never admit it, but she's been dying for a decent opponent to bully. Zuko wanted to ask how Sokka himself felt about him coming, but they had lapsed into a comfortable silence, and the moment felt as fragile and iridescent as a soap bubble. Lying on his back, Zuko could see the flock of sandpipers taking flight above their heads. The birds rose up in a unified black mass, but then they turned, wheeled, and scattered, before diving down as a flurry of black shapes against the lime-green sky. What are you thinking? Sokka asked. Zuko looked at the sun, which had become a flat golden disk on the horizon. I think the reason none of our whistling worked is because I'm scaring away exactly as many birds as you're calling down, he said finally. It made Sokka burst out laughing, and then Zuko gave in, laughed too. At the sound of their voices, the whole flock chirped and flew away, which only made them laugh harder. Two weeks' worth of long summer days, so close to the South Pole, had made Zuko sun-drunk and loopy. He wasn't used to being happy, didn't trust it very much, but there was a lightness inside of his chest that warmed him more thoroughly than fire. He propped himself up on his elbow. He wanted to ask Sokka to explain why the twilights were so bright here, even after the sun itself had dipped below the horizon. Sokka would know. He knew everything. Except, when Zuko turned his head to look at Sokka's smiling face, the thought that came into his mind wasn't about astronomy or suns or polar geography at all. I wonder what it'd be like to kiss him, Zuko thought, and the world tilted on its axis, 
The impulse came and went in a sharp, tender second. But after that, everything started to go wrong. Thank you so much for listening to chapter four. Sorry, this one came out a bit late. I know it seemed like they'd be coming out more frequently, but ended up taking a sudden trip to a new city. And so I wasn't able to keep my recording schedule as consistent as I would have liked. Thank you again to Chuffy Stilton for letting me record this. And thank you to my girlfriend for being supportive as always, even though we're now in different cities for a little bit. And finally, thank you to all of you for listening. Please stay safe out there and have a good night.